Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, we come to what may be a familiar passage to some of us. And we pray that as your word is revelation, that you would once again uh, make clear what has perhaps become unclear to our hearts and our minds, that you would help us to see Jesus by the power of the Spirit at work within us, that the story of the gospel would shape more and more of our lives and that you would draw us by faith to dwell in that story and to worship you even as we look at this text and think about it together. Would you do this, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, many of you know that before I came to Trinity, I was involved in campus ministry uh, with a ministry called RUF, and one of the things that you do fairly frequently in campus ministry is you do some weddings. You know, you have students that come, and they are in college, and they meet, and they fall in love, and they get engaged, and then they ask the campus minister to marry them. Um, so I remember being at RUF training with the other, uh, some other campus ministers, and this was it's very random, but the national coordinator at the time just randomly started sharing about how he doesn't do premarital counseling. He said, meet with them three to six months after they get married. That was his idea. Now, he was probably the only person in the whole room that thought premarital counseling was maybe, in his opinion, kind of a waste of time. Um, but as he kind of explained some of his reasoning, I don't think anybody actually changed their opinion. I still do it. Uh, I know a lot of my friends in RUF still do it. But his experience was you meet with some couple, newly engaged, and you try to talk to them about some pretty important stuff. <laughs> and you try to talk to them about some issues and some struggles that they're going to have. And you're trying to have these conversations, and they are so focused on what is coming and this beautiful wedding day and how they're going to live together and what it's going to be like. And it's, it's just, it's so great that they don't have eyes to see what's coming. And this, this scene in the Gospels is very much like that, like a newly engaged couple the disciples are traveling with Jesus, and they have a certain picture of what this going to Jerusalem is going to look like, that their imaginations are filled with images of Jesus being crowned as, as the king, that he is the promised king from the Old Testament, that he is going to fulfill God's promises, and they have this very clear picture of what that's going to look like. And so the scene that we just read, that Jeff just read for us, it's almost comical. Because Jesus explains to them, this is the third time that he does this, he explains to them what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem, what's actually going to take place. He, he gives specific details. Look at verse 18, what he tells them. He's going to be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then, after Jesus telling them this, James and John send their mommy to Jesus to go ask for the places of honor in his kingdom. This passage uh, in Matthew shows us a problem. 
a problem uh, as well as a remedy. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning, the problem and then the remedy. It, Matthew's highlighting a problem that's going to be true for any of us who are going to seek to follow Jesus. This is going to be a problem if you're here or if you're listening this morning and you're trying to figure out who Jesus is and what it actually means to be a Christian. This is going to be a problem for you. Uh, if you're here and you actually believe in Jesus and you're trying to follow him, this is going to be a problem for you as well. And it's this uh, problem, what one author called congenital obtuseness. That we are those who are born with a dullness toward God. And we live in a world that only further dulls us to the things of God and the ways of God. If we were to zoom out in the Gospel of Matthew into this larger section that we're in, uh, Matthew 19 through 20, you would see how Jesus is dealing with this problem again and again. That when it comes to understanding God, when it comes to understanding the values of the kingdom and the way of Jesus that were very dull and slow. So in chapter 19 through 20, Jesus is sort of leading his disciples in a re-education of what it looks like to follow him. And in contrast to human thinking, we see how God thinks. In contrast to the way of the world, we see the way of Jesus' kingdom. We see what really counts, what's really important, what really matters. So, for example, in chapter 19, Jesus re-educates his followers about commitment in the covenant of marriage in contrast to a sort of first century version of easy divorce. And then in contrast to a culture that highly lifts up and exalts marriage and family and children, Jesus honors the value and the dignity of singleness for the sake of the kingdom. In chapter 19, he shows um, the value of welcoming in those who are less important in the eyes of the world, children, while a person of great importance, a wealthy person, he sends off and lets leave. He talks about in chapter 19 the disadvantage, the disadvantage of wealth. And then in chapter 20, he tells a parable about the grace and the generosity of God that confounds human categories. And twice in this section, he'll say, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And in our passage, the disciples are confronted with their need to be re-educated about what is really great. What is true greatness really about? The disciples are after greatness, and if you notice in this passage, Jesus doesn't discourage going after greatness. In verse 26, he says this, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So he's not discouraging greatness or, or even ambition, but he is radically, radically redirecting it and reorienting it. Because in human thinking, greatness is about ascending. It's about going up. It's a hierarchy. The, the, the greater you are, the greater your life goes up. The more you're on top, the level of your greatness corresponds to how high you rise. And this is what Jesus says in essence in verse 25 when he talks about this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them. These two verbs here, lord it over and exercise authority over, uh, they're compound words that both have this prefix in Greek, basically meaning down. So it's this top-down sort of thing. You're on the top and you lord it over, you use those privileges and all the things that, that you have on top over the ones that you are over. And this is something that I think we all probably could intuitively just understand and we've probably experienced this and we probably know this. But this is kind of how society works and relationships work. So like you could think about your job when you used to go into an office, at least. And maybe, you know, the greatness was what floor you were on in your building. Or, you know, who had the corner office in the building. Or you could think about where you live, right? You think about which suburb you live in which neighborhood in that suburb you live in, the size of the house in that neighborhood. For some reason, my mind goes to middle school and the middle school lunchroom. I don't know if anyone can, can imagine your middle school lunchroom, but my middle school lunchroom, like the level of your greatness was totally determined by where you sat. So there's different tables and there's different groups. And those groups are related in some sort of intuitively understood and known hierarchy. And then within those groups, there is, of course, another level of hierarchy. And greatness was somehow climbing that ladder by being funny, by being attractive, by being smart, by being athletic, by being musical. Your level of greatness could go up a little bit. And then that awarded you certain privileges because you could make fun of certain people, or certain people couldn't make fun of you. If you wanted to have a date to go to the dance, your likelihood of who you would get to go with you and what group they would be from. And the social imagination of the disciples is still very much kind of like middle schoolers. <laughs> it's according to the world, and it's a top-down sort of thing. You want to rise to the top so that at the top, you can enjoy the privileges comforts and all that it means to be on top. And this is what James and John are after, and this is why all the other disciples are very angry with them, because it's what they're after. And if you've been reading the Gospel of Matthew, or you know, if you've been following Jesus and what he's been saying to us so far, you have to be thinking, guys, what are you thinking? But this is where that congenital obtuseness comes in. That, that this dullness toward the things of God, that it runs very deep. And so consider this. You can have a lot right and still have a lot wrong. Think about the disciples. They followed the call of Jesus. They, they left everything to go and follow him. They believed the scriptures. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the coming King. And Jesus had just said these words in Matthew 19, 28. I, I'm going to quote him. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I think James and John believe that. And so that's why they're like, hey, can we have the places of greatest honor in this? And yet, despite all of the things that they have right, there's clearly some things 
that are very, very off. That when it comes to what they value, what they intuitively see and imagine as amazing and great and what they want, that's really off from the way of Jesus. And I think what this means for us is don't assume that because you and I perhaps have right ideas and right beliefs about Jesus, that what we really value is actually what Jesus values. In fact, it's probably safe to assume somewhere it doesn't. Uh, I remember uh, a former RUF campus minister shared this story about John Newton. Um, Many of you are perhaps familiar with Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace, probably what he's most well-known for. You may or may not know that Newton, before becoming a Christian, was involved uh, in the slave trade in 18th century England, that he was a captain of slave ships. And now later in his life, Newton would become uh, a chief um, uh, leader in the abolitionist movement in England. And you would think, given the clear evils of slavery and how unbiblical, unbiblical the abduction of people and then enslaving them was, you would think that Newton, upon understanding the grace of God in Christ and coming to be alive by the Spirit, that there would have been this clear and definitive break with the practice of slavery and the slave trade. But that's not what happened. It took a while. And in his autobiography, he writes about this process of, ta- of cutting ties with the slave trade. And he writes this. The reader may perhaps wonder, as I now do myself, that knowing the state of this vile traffic, I did not at the time recoil with horror at my own employment as an agent promoting it. Custom, example, and interest blinded my eyes. Think about that last sentence. Custom, example, and interest blinded my eyes. Custom. This is how things are. This is how the world works. Maybe it's not ideal. But this is what it is. Example. I know people, good people, Christian people who own slaves. Maybe it's not ideal, but am I really going to make an issue of this thing? Interest. There's going to be a lot at stake in fighting this. There is a lot to lose. This is going to cost a lot. Newton writes, Now I look back, and I just wince. Where have custom, example, and interest blinded our eyes? I am not a prophet, and I am not infallible in my interest. I'm going to make some general comments about the church, and I'm going to make some specific comments about, I think, us as individuals. But I, I, I think that we will look back at the way the American church engaged in politics and sought political power at times. And if we are listening to Jesus and we're being conformed to his way, we will look back and wince. I think we will look back and we will regret the way that the American church, in various 
places allowed talented and impressive people to rise to positions of power and then use that power in spiritually abusive ways. And we allowed it to go on for a period of time because it was not in our interest to stand up to that and we were after greatness. I think we will look back at the way that the church dealt with issues of race and issues of justice and issues of failing to protect and care for the needy and the sojourner and the widow and will wince. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus with me, I think there are ways that I, and I think there are ways that you, as we're being conformed to the image of Jesus, that we'll look back perhaps at the ways that we spent money or spent time or the ways we tried to raise our kids, the, the way we did our careers, the ways we related to others at work or in our neighborhoods, and we'll look back and wince. Because there are powerful forces in this world that are shaping our lives in ways that we cannot fully appreciate. And it's very possible, as we see in this text itself, that you can have so much right and yet be so off in the way of Jesus. So if this is the problem, what, what is the remedy? Jesus gives us the remedy in this passage when he contrasts the way of power and greatness in the world with his own example. And he tells us what true greatness is. If you look at verse 26, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Greatness is not about going up. It's about going down. It's actually the opposite of what we all intuitively think and understand and know. This is what we see in Jesus, and this is what Jesus says about himself in verse 28, where he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if our problem is this, congenital obtuseness, this dullness toward the things of God, then again and again we're going to have to return to the person of Jesus. And again and again, specifically, we're going to have to return to the cross of Jesus. And this is actually uh, what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul's writing to this church that is very much influenced by the things of this world and the ways and the values of this world. And he reminds them in 1 Corinthians 2 that in his ministry to them, he did not minister to them in a way that was trying to fit the values of the world or was trying to win them over by the kind of arguments that the world would find appealing, but he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. So if we're going to be won over to the values of Jesus, to true greatness, we're going to have to drill deeply into what Jesus did for us. And so I want us to think about what, what he's saying when he says that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. In the Greco-Roman world of Jesus' time, ransom was a term that was used in the marketplace. So you would pay bail, you would buy a slave or a captive of war, and you would ransom them. So if you were a captive or a slave, someone ransoms you, and now you belong to them. Interestingly, 
recently learned this, that in the Greco-Roman pagan world of Jesus' time, we have inscriptions of the word ransom being used in pagan religious rites. And so what would happen is a person would be in a bad situation, and they would offer a ransom up to the gods, hoping that in some way that this payment to the gods would improve their life, would smooth things over. And you can even see how this whole way of thinking and ransom in, in that world was very much in a sort of top-down, hierarchical sort of worldview. But in the Hebrew world, in the Old Testament, ransom is connected to the Exodus, where the Israelites are enslaved, they're captive, they're being held in Egypt, and God comes, and he ransoms her, and he sets her free to belong to him. And later in the Old Testament story, after Israel has fallen into sin again, and, and now they're in judgment and they're in exile, the prophet Isaiah is going to write about how God is again going to ransom his people. He's going to release them from their captivity. He's going to set them free. He's going to make them his again. And he's going to talk about, interestingly, a cup. Remember Jesus mentions in verse 22, a cup. In the Old Testament, there's this repeated imagery of this cup. This cup of the wrath of God. And in the Old Testament, various prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, the prophets take this cup to the nations, and they have to drink from this cup. And in Isaiah 51, Israel herself drinks from this cup, this cup of judgment. But then in Isaiah 53, the prophet describes this coming suffering servant who's going to exchange himself for the people. And numerous scholars will know that this is, this is what Jesus is ref referencing when he's talking about a ransom. He's referencing Isaiah 53. And he's saying that his life is going to be given as a ransom, that his life is going to be given in exchange for the many, for ours, that he is going to be rejected, that he's going to carry our sorrows, he's going to bear our grief, he's going to be crushed by our sins, that his wounding is going to result in our being healed, and that our turning away and all the consequences that come from when we turn away from God, they're going to fall on him. They're going to be fully laid on him. And this is what is great. This is what greatness looks like. You see, the disciples, they're thinking, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to be enthroned. And he's going to be lifted up. And, and, he's, and it's going to be glorious. And he is going to be enthroned, but not on a throne. He's going to be enthroned on the cross. And he is going to be lifted up. And there is going to be one on the right and on the left. But it's not going to be places of honor. It's going to be two criminals who are dying the shameful, horrible death of crucifixion with him. And this is what true greatness is. It's not reaching up like Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, who reach for the fruit that they might be like God, that they might ascend. Or the picture that you get of all fallen humanity in Genesis chapter 11, where we build this tower that ascends into the sky so that we can make a name for ourselves. But true greatness is going down. It's the greatness of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, who though being in the form of God and being equal with God, didn't 
grasp after that, but rather he emptied himself. He went down. He took the form of a servant. He went down. He died the death of a slave. He went all the way down to exchange his life for ours, to serve us and to pay the debt that we so greatly needed him to pay. And that is what is great. So wherever you are this morning, whatever your level of greatness in the world, we can pursue true greatness in and through Jesus. We can serve people in our family. We can serve people in our neighborhoods. You just start thinking about the people in your life. If you're a student, the people in your schools. You could follow the lead of our diaconal team and, and serve in ministries like Feeding the Homeless and Downers Grove. We, we can look out for the needy, for the friendless, for the widow, the fatherless, the, the immigrant. Some of us are in places of, of great power. We, we have great means. That's why we live in this area. We have great influence. And it's not wrong to be in those places. If, if God has gifted you, if he has given you opportunity and he's called you, use it. Use it to serve. Throughout history, we see how God raises up people. You could think of Joseph or Daniel. But true greatness has nothing to do with how high we go, but rather how low we will go to serve others like Jesus served us. I want you to just think about the beauty of a community who is actually living out this value of what greatness really is. A community where we are outdoing one another and showing honor and love to one another, looking for ways where we can serve one another. Think about this beautiful community and what it would look like in a place like this as we serve neighbors, as we give ourselves our time, our resources, everything that we have, we pour it out so that other people might come to know the freedom of knowing Jesus and being ransomed. This is the task really before us, and it's something that one sermon can never accomplish because as we see in the disciples, this is something that we have to sit with. We have to be nourished in it day after day as we read the scriptures ourselves and as we pray, as we, as we gather together in community groups and discipleship groups, that this story, this true story of the crucified God would more and more transform our minds and our hearts that we would actually really start to value what he values. Let's take a couple minutes, uh, as we always do, um, after we hear God's word, it's a great time to respond to God in some way, to, to pray, to confess our sins, to ask for God's help. So let's do that now, and then uh, Jeff will come up and lead us in prayer.